Yeah, can you turn to Genesis 38? And just a, a word of, of, of caution, especially to, to parents. Um, there's some explicit uh, descriptions in this text of, of Scripture, so some parental guidance is advised, but it is the Word of God, so we, we do need to hear it. So Genesis 38 from verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she was born, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. 
Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the, by the man to whom these things belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is truth, that uh, divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and that is life-giving. So Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would continue to sanctify us through your word and conforming us increasingly to your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we, we live, certainly live in interesting times here in, in South Africa. There's a strong likelihood that our government has been selling arms to Russia, um, aiding them in the war against the Ukraine. Um, this week, us Durbanites are going to get our fair share of, of load shedding that we've been exempt from, generally speaking, compared to the rest of the country. And laws are about to be passed in our country that are going to severely restrict minorities from being employed in the private sector. And so hearing all these things, it can, it can get overwhelming. Okay, sometimes you can feel helpless in, in the midst of all these things we don't have control over. Um, where there's injustice, where there's evil and, and wickedness just multiplying and it seems like it's not abating. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, well, where is God in, in all this? Can he still accomplish his purposes in the mess in the midst of this sin-cursed world? Now, as you've just heard in the passage that's been read, it describes all sorts of wicked and sordid events in Genesis 38. And so we, in the passage, we are introduced to, to Judah and his sons and their various acts of, of wickedness. And now we can only really understand just how wicked they are by by first going back to Genesis 12 and, and Genesis 15. I know the, when we, 
I preached on those chapters last time. It was a long way back and a lot of you weren't even a part of the church yet. So maybe go back and listen to to those sermons on the podcast. But um, those two passages are very important if we want to understand what's going on here. And in those passages, God makes covenant, very important covenant promises to Abraham. And the nature of those promises is that he will multiply Abraham's offspring, that they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Remember, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, didn't have kids. They couldn't have kids at that point. And the other promise that God makes to Abraham is that through Abraham's seed, through an off, the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, Judah is Abraham's great-grandson. And as we're going to see in this text, he and his sons intentionally try to frustrate these covenant promises of God that he had made to Abraham. And they do so because of their own selfishness and greed. And so what we're going to see this morning is that because God is sovereign and he's faithful, His plans cannot be thwarted. And he will achieve his purposes even in the midst of human sinfulness and faithlessness. So three points. We look at Judah and his wicked sons, then Tamar's plan and God's faithfulness in the face of faithlessness. So first off, Judah and his wicked sons from verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hirah. So the chapter starts off straight away. It happened at that time. Well, well, what time did all this happen? Well, we need to remember last week's sermon that Brendan preached for us on the previous chapter, Genesis 37, all, all about Joseph. Remember that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And the the very fact of him being sold into slavery was actually Judah's idea, if you remember. The other other brothers wanted to kill him and get it over with. Judah is more of a schemer and said, ah, we can make some cash off our brother here. Rather, sell him off into slavery and we actually get something from it instead of just killing him and then we get nothing. Okay, so we start to see... Just what a piece of work Judah is here. And uh, even the, this you know, opening um, hints to that. So Joseph, Judah's brother, is taken off to Egypt as a slave. And so the camera now shifts from last week we were in Joseph. And then also the chapters after this chapter all about Joseph. The camera for a brief moment shifts from Joseph onto Judah and his family. And so at the time that Joseph is taken off into Egypt, away from his household, Judah now leaves his household as well. We see now voluntarily, unlike his brother. And he does something unusual. He goes and settles amongst the Canaanites. Now, if you remember, in previous chapters, God had specifically given Jacob, Judah's father, Um, told him to settle in the promised land and and, and to not mix with the Canaanites. 
um, because he was going to destroy them and give the land in its entirety to, to Jacob and his descendants. But Judah, already disobeying things, he, he goes and settles amongst the Canaanites, um, particular amongst the Adullamites, um, around a, a guy called Hira. And there, while he's amongst the Canaanites, the, an unnamed girl, the daughter of Shua, who's also a Canaanite, captures the gaze of Judah. And in verse 2, it says that he saw her. He took her. You imagine him just lifting her up on his shoulders and carrying her off. And he went into her. Okay, It's very abrupt, in-your-face language, suggesting that, that Judah acts on his base instincts. So he marries this Canaanite girl in direct violation of the instructions given to his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac, who told their sons not to marry these cursed Canaanites. But in spite of these warnings, Judah is not bothered, and he completely disregards them, and so he does his own thing, and he marries this Canaanite girl. So very soon, sons are born to, to Judah's Judah and his wife, his firstborn is Ur, followed by Onan, and the youngest is called Shelah. So verse 5 tells us that the lastborn Shelah was born when Judah was in Chezib. Now Chezib in Hebrew means town of lies. So already there's there's pre-empting what's going to happen. This episode is full of lies and, and deception. So, so for Judah initially, in his mind, well, so far everything's going pretty well. He's got, his wife has born him three sons, and that's more than enough for, for him to carry on the family name. But now things start getting more interesting from verse 6. So Judah, okay, this is you know, how things worked in the old days. You didn't go and choose your own wife. Your, your parents went and... <laughs> And match made, match made for you. So Judah takes a wife for his firstborn, Ur, a Canaanite a woman called Tamar. So Tamar in Hebrew means a palm tree. And so her name is associated with, with fruitfulness. But unfortunately, as we're going to see very quickly, she, she's not going to be fruitful. Definitely in this marriage and generally not as much as I'm sure she would have hoped. So why is she not fruitful in her first marriage? Well, verse 7 tells us that Ur is put to death by the Lord. Now, this is the first individual in the whole Bible who's killed directly by God. Uh, We've seen earlier in Genesis that God has killed multitudes at the same time. We first saw that in Genesis 6 with Noah, the flood. Okay, God wiped out most of humanity, except for Noah and, and his family. He saved them. And then in Genesis 19, God obliterates Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does God do this? Well, in all those instances, the people had committed great wickedness. And it's exactly the same here for for. Ur, okay, his name in, in Hebrew, actually, there's a play on words here. Um, 
it, it, it spelled backwards is, is, is evil. Okay, so you could say what the, the narrator is trying to say, well, er, er, <laughs> okay. And so why was he killed? Well, he was killed because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It do, doesn't give us any details of exactly why he did it. It just said he was very wicked. So you may be thinking, wow, I mean, that is extreme. God just zapping people and killing them. Doesn't that make God out to be some evil monster who just willy-nilly, for no real reason, just snuffs people out? Is God some tyrant who does this? Hey, no, not at all. Okay, God is holy. God is, is good and God is just. And because of this, the penalty of sin is death. So God is, is this is not as if we're just looking at an Old Testament God here and the New Testament God that is different. Remember, God also killed people in the New Testament. Don't forget that. Yeah, God's completely just to do this. In actual fact, for, for God not to punish evil would make God out to be evil himself. And if you just wink away evil, that doesn't make you good. It means you're condoning the evil practice. And so it's precisely because God is good that evil must be punished. And God punishes evil here in a very vivid way by killing Ur. So what Ur's death means now is that Tamar is childless and she's a widow. And in the ancient world, you were considered a failure if that was your position because you're going to likely end up in poverty. No one to, to care for you. No offspring to provide for you. But in verse 8, Judah instructs his secondborn, Onan, to have children with her. Now, it may seem unusual for, for us in the 21st century to to hear that, you know, your, um, your brother to just have his, his, his dead brother's wife. But in the ancient world, there was nothing unusual about that. In fact, that was expected. Um, it's even written into to the law of Moses um, in Deuteronomy 25. This was known as the, the leveret marriage. So if a, a man dies, his brother was meant to marry his wife. And his brother didn't want to do it. Then the next uh, closest relative would be obliged to do so. And the purpose of that was to obviously keep the family line going, but also to ensure that there was, that the, the, the widow would not just be um, left to a life of poverty, that she'd be provided for and looked after by, by the family. But what we see here is, yes, there's a the principle of the, Leverett marriage being applied here, but not quite, because if you notice, there's no mention of marriage. Okay, Judah doesn't instruct Onan to marry her. Okay, he doesn't seem too concerned actually about Tamar's security. Otherwise, he would have told his son to marry her. But his only concern, Judah, is about getting an heir for himself. And so then in verse 9, we see that Onan realizes that because he's not going to marry her, 
the children that he would have with Tamar don't belong to him. Because, verse 8, he's been told his job is to raise up offspring for who? For himself? No, for his brother. So the children that he would have with Tamar would not belong to him. They would not be considered his children. So why would that be a problem for Onan? Well, as it stands, his older brother is dead now, the firstborn. So now he is considered the firstborn. And if you're the firstborn in the ancient world, you receive a double portion of the inheritance. So if he were his offspring with Tamar, now wouldn't be considered his, they'd be considered his brothers. That would make, that would then take him out of the, he would no longer be considered the firstborn and therefore he would no longer be in line to inherit the double portion of the inheritance. Instead, the, 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 the eldest son would be. So he would lose out materially. So it's for this reason that while Onan enjoys intercourse with Tamar, he deliberately chooses not to impregnate her. So here's an example of his selfish interests at play. He's, he's driven by, by, by greed. And the result of this, all verse 10 tells us that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Same language as used with his brother Ur. And so God puts him to death as well. So why were Onan's actions so wicked that they deserved to be put to death? That he deserved to be put to death. Well, ultimately, yes, he's being selfish and all that. But more importantly, he is trying to frustrate the plans of God. He would have known about God's promises to his forebears, Abraham and Isaac, that, he would, that God promised to, to cause their offspring to be as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Hey, that, this, that this promise contained God's redemptive plans for his people to see, send a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, that God would finally destroy sin and save a people for himself. So Onan is aware of those covenant promises in the background. So Onan's not just being selfish and greedy, but he's... By not wanting to impregnate Tamar, he's deliberately trying to thwart God's redemptive plans. And that's a serious deserving of death. And that's exactly why the Lord put him to death. So now Judah faces a serious problem. Two of his sons are dead and he's got no heir. And he also refuses to see the reason for his son's death, that it's their own wickedness. Instead, somehow he thinks that it's Tamar to blame. He sees her as the common denominator. Well, she was with both these guys. They both died, and so it must be her fault. And that's what we see in, in verse 11. Yeah, it gives us that very reason. So he promises Tamar, his youngest son, Shelah, in marriage. But at the moment, he's probably a little boy. He's not old enough to get married. But he says to, to Tamar, no, you just wait until he's old enough. And then you can have him 
as, as your husband. But already it's clear that Judah has no plans to honor that promise. Because he thinks that Tamar is also going to cause the, the, the death of his lastborn. So things end in this first section with looking quite bleak all around. Judah's lost two of his sons. He's heirless. And Tamar is a widow. And she doesn't have any kids. So this brings us to our second point. Tamar's plan from verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah's, Shur's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hera the Dolomite. So we see here that as time goes on, Judah's wife dies. And as, um, after he's uh, mourned her death, he meets up with his friend uh, Hera, the Dulamites, and they go up and t- to, to shear sheep. Okay, so in the ancient world, you know, all the, 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 the guys get together and to shear sheep, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a big party. Okay, the, the, the dops are flowing. There's obviously, they'll do a lamb on the spit and it's a, it, it's a big celebration. And so in verse 13, Tamar gets wind of her father-in-law's plans to, to go up sheep shearing and have a, a big party time. And so she decides to make a plan of her own. So what she does is she dresses up like a prostitute. She covers her face with a veil and she positions herself on the route that she knows her father-in-law is going to take to this sheep shearing fest. So why does she do this? Well, verse 14 tells us she realizes that now Judah has, has got no intentions of honoring his promise to give uh, Shelah to her as, her as her husband. Okay, He's deceived her. Shelah is not the lighty that he was anymore. He's grown up. He's a big boy now. He's ready to get married. And nothing's happened. And so she, real, she she's now is going to deceive Judah and to try and get pregnant from him through her own father-in-law, okay, which by definition is incestuous. But if she were just to carry on as, as she, she would have, she, as a widow, she knows that she's going to be condemned to a life of poverty and she's going to be an outcast. So she takes matters into her own hands. So her plan works. Judah takes the bait. He sleeps with her. He doesn't recognize her. Okay, remember, the dops have been flowing. And for payment for her services, he promises her a goat. But in the meantime, he doesn't, obviously, he's not carrying a goat under his arm with him there. But he gives her a pledge or a promise, a, a, a down payment, something that she's going to keep until he gives her the goat. And then she will give those things back to him. And what is the, the, what are those things? What is the pledge? Well, it's his signet, it's his cord, and his staff. Now, these things in the ancient world were um, personal items that would identify you. So it was, would be much the same today as if he gave um, her his ID book, his credit card, and his driver's license. Okay, you kind of need those things. Okay, they're essential and they identify you. 
So that's exactly what the signet and the cord and the staff do. So afterwards now, verse 20, Judah wants his, his personal items back. So he organizes for a friend to deliver the, the, the goat to the prostitute. Okay, Noche, he doesn't want to go and do it himself. He doesn't want to be seen you know, associating with that company because it's shameful. But obviously there's no prostitute to be found. So now 20, verse 24, a bit of more time has gone by. Three months have, have, have gone by. And Judah finds out that now Tamar is pregnant by practicing sexual immorality. Now, obviously, at this point, he's got no idea who's impregnated her. And his immediate response is not to sit down with her and say, hey, you know, Tamar, what, 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 what happened here? What, what's, the, what's your side of the story? There's none of that. He goes straight for uh, the jugular and says that she must be put to death in the most horrific manner, and that is by being burnt alive. Now, according to the letter of the law, he's correct to um, demand that punishment because that's what Leviticus 21 verse 9 uh, states as the punishment for someone who prostitutes themselves. That you be burnt. So immediately he wants the, um, the, the punishment of, that the law provides for. But with no, as I said, he, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't try and see what's going on from her side. So you maybe think, well, why is he so hasty to get rid of her? Yeah, well, we know he's blamed her for the death of his sons. But he's also betrothed Shela to to her, and that's a bit of a problem now because he doesn't want to give Shela in marriage. He doesn't want to honor that promise, and now because of that, Shela is going to stay single too. Okay, so he doesn't. He's in a quandary. He doesn't have. <laughs> he's not going to be able to get any heirs, even through his last son, because he's already made. He's betrothed Tamar to to him. So, what's how does all the his Judah's problems get solved? Well, get rid of Tamar. And then Shelah is going to be free to, to marry someone else. So in verse 25, as she's, Tamar is being brought out to be burned, it's all the very last minute. The fire is going. You, know, you can s- smell the fire and the wood's cracking and everything. She holds up Judah's personal items and saying that the owner of these is the one who impregnated her. And so immediately Judah is cut to the heart and he he confesses his sin. He acknowledges that they are his. And in verse 26, he says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. So he realizes that she's done this precisely because of his own deceitfulness in not giving Shelah to her as a husband. So some months later now, verse 27 tells us that she is now giving birth and she's giving birth to twins. And as she's giving birth, the first twin sticks out his hand out of the womb. And so a scarlet thread is is tied to his hand to identify him. But before he can come out, his younger brother beats him (laughs) to the post and he comes out first. 
And he's called Perez, and Perez in Hebrew means breakthrough. Okay, so he broke through the womb. He, he beat his brother to the finishing line, while the other brother is called Zerah. So what are we to make of this episode? Where is God in all of this? Well, what we see here is that despite all the sin and wickedness and deception, God is still faithful in achieving his purposes of redemption as he had promised to do so through Abraham. Well, how so? Well, God uses the steely determination and deceptive means of Tamar. He's a Canaanite, he's a Gentile to give Judah an heir. And in so doing, ensures that Judah's line is preserved. So why is that significant? What's so special about the line of Judah? Well, if we keep on reading in Genesis, in the weeks to come we'll get you, we'll see that it is Judah's line whom the Lord has chosen to be preeminent in Israel. And from whose line the Messiah will come. And then if we fast forward all the way to the first page of the New Testament. Okay, Matthew 1. Okay, it starts off with Jesus' genealogy. And very interestingly we see that Tamar, well, Judah, Tamar and Perez all feature in Jesus' genealogy. They are Jesus' ancestors. Okay, and then what we also see in that, and we see this in, in Ruth 4 as well, is that Perez, Judah's son, is the ancestor of Boaz. Okay, Boaz married, remember, Boaz married Ruth, and then Boaz's and Ruth's great-grandson is King David. And then we also see in the genealogy that David's descendant is Jesus, who's called the son of David in Matthew 1 verse 1. Jesus is this promised seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, through whom all nations will be blessed. The one whom God will choose to save a people for himself by dying on the cross, by giving up of himself as a sacrifice for sins, arising again to life and, and destroying the power of evil and forgiving the sins of those who trust in him. Now it's incredible that despite Judah's sinfulness and wickedness, him de deceiving Tamar, his hatred of her, his sexual immorality with her, despite yeah, and even Tamar's deception of Judah, I mean, despite all this mess, despite the mess, the sins of his sons, God in his sovereignty still worked out his perfect plan to send his promised Messiah to save a sinful people. So these sinful, sexually immoral people are Jesus' ancestors according to his humanity. I mean, just think about that. Though all this sin, it didn't originate with God. But he certainly used it for his good in order to achieve his purposes. 
And through this, God ensures that his purposes will stand. And that despite the messiness of, of human sin, he is going to work out all things for the good of those who love him. And that he's faithful even when we are faithless, as, as 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us. So bringing this all together, perhaps you think you've messed up so badly that you've completely blown it. You can't recover, that you've ruined your life's trajectory, that there's no hope and that maybe even God can't even forgive you. And you know what? Well, the truth is that, yeah, you have blown it. You do deserve to be put to death for your sin, just like Judah's sons, Ur and Onan. Because God doesn't just wink sin away. Okay, there's a price to pay for sin, and that price is the shedding of blood, and it's death. But thankfully, the story doesn't end with Ur and, and Onan. In spite of their sinfulness and brokenness, in God's faithfulness, God used Judah and Tamar to bring forth his promised Savior, his son, Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman. And because Jesus was put to death on the cross instead of you, because Jesus faced God's wrath and judgment for sins, in your place because Jesus's blood was shed instead of yours carrying upon himself every heinous sin and all your guilt and your shame and because he rose again and conquered death and sin trusting in him you can know this morning that indeed God forgives your sins that there is hope, that there is restoration and a glorious future in Christ. So brothers and sisters, repent and trust in Christ, who the only one who grants this gift of grace, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and gives to you exactly what you don't deserve. And know that indeed he is faithful even when you are faithless. That despite your mess, he will accomplish his perfect purposes in preserving us, his church, and raising us up to eternal life on the last day where he will be our God and we will be his people. Amen.